Before we officially get started, mm-hmm. I have something for you. You do. It's a paper girl's four. Here, take a look. Oh, it is. It's paper girl's four. It looks so awesome. It's out. It's like an old chick with a gun and a young chick with a lip piercing. Ah, fan Another threw it right. Another chick with a weird headgear. It looks awesome. Fan threw it right in front of the microphone so people can get that new comic book smell. Oh, are you guys ready? New comic book smell. <laughs> <sighs> That's good stuff. Oh, it looks so good. Let's do the podcast in like two hours. I'm just kidding. (laughs) After I read this. (laughs) All right. So coming to a podcast near you soon, Paper Girls 4, we'll probably wait until we finish uh, Red Seas Under Red Skies. So exciting. (laughs) Welcome back to the Duke and Duchess podcast. Welcome. It's been a while. Though not for them. True. It's been a while since our last book club. It's been a while since we've recorded. It is. Yeah. We may be rusty. I ain't rusty. I've I've been in dry storage. You never forget. (laughs) Damn. Other podcast. (laughs) That's the other podcast. Other podcast. Sorry, guys. All right. (laughs) (laughs) So welcome. We are the Duke and the Duchess. I'm just now wondering whether or not that fact that you put out there is true. I don't know. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) All I'm saying is I tried to ride a bike once in my 30s, <laughs> not having ridden a bike since I was 13. It didn't go very well. It didn't go well. <laughs> so Called a lot of things into question. Gotcha. Gotcha. <laughs> so we are now at episode 48. Welcome to episode 48. Woo, that 50 is around the corner. It's coming up. It's coming up. And in this episode, we are going to cover Red Seas Under Red Skies, chapters 8 through 11, written by Scott Lynch. The fantastic Mr. Scott Lynch. That's right. And on our next book club, we are going to cover chapters 12 through 13. Hmm. That doesn't seem like a whole lot of chapters, but they are long. So it's about 100 pages. If you've somehow been reading along with us, first of all, God, God bless, bless you. you. God bless you. But next book club will be chapters 12 through 13. So why don't you go over our spoiler policy? So our spoiler policy is very simply that Liz has read the entire Gentleman Bastards series. I have not. This is my first read through. So we will be spoiler free through chapter 11 of Red Seas Under Red Skies, but know, know that Liz is lording it over you with her smug book reader knowledge. <laughs> Very smug on this side of the room. Oh, so do you want to tell them where we've been? Like, do you want to give a quick, like, couple minute recap on what our lives have been like over the past couple of weeks? Oh, you mean where we've been? I thought you meant in the book. No. 
No. There's a whole book to reference for that, but if we don't tell them, they won't know. Well, to make a long story short, we trooped, we loved, we lost. I died. We, we went to the beach. Chad got super sick. In case you couldn't tell, and if you've followed our podcast for a while, we basically have one white blood cell <laughs> that we share between us. So it was my turn with the white blood cell. Clyde. We call him Hector. Hector. That's right. I'm sorry. Hector. Yeah. <laughs> Poor, Poor Chad Hector's. got the flu. Yep. You had Hector that. It was your week to have Hector. I got the flu. And then upon recovering from said flu, got a bacterial infection after the fact. I have never in my life been sicker for a longer period of time. You were sick, man. It was like 17 days. You looked bad. It was it was rough. It was not pretty. But we survived. And now you've all had that thrilling medical update. Yes. Well, it's very important. People have to know the frame of reference that we come to this with, from, to, out of, preposition. He may have lost prepositions at some That's point. They just fell I'm, out of his head. I, I'm at hoping some I'll point get them back during all the fever. So, enough about us. What about Jean and Locke? The book club. All right. So we are reading, as we said, Red Seas Under Red Skies, which is book two of the Gentleman Bastard series. If you have not read book one, do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go back and read book one. Yeah. If you've been following along with us, we are up to and starting chapter eight. Up to now, we've seen our heroes move to a new city, get down in the dumps, become a sad alcoholic, one of them, for a little while. Mm Mm-hmm. They moved to this new city and started a scheme, but very quickly they were dragged into some political maneuvering by the um, the archon of the city who poisoned them in order to get them to do something Which is that was going to further his political goals. Still one of the most outlandish things I've ever seen, if you take it on its face. Pretty asinine. It's pretty asinine. Good word. I like that word. Say it again. Asinine like that word (laughs) and in the last section that we read jean and Locke very improbably were being taught to be sailors because their scheme involved going to sea so we had kind of a long and for us very tedious chapter on gibbets and poop decks not tying not tying indeed but finally i think this section we finally half hitch close hitch really those are all the knots I know. You're show off like that? <laughs> I don't know anymore. <laughs> I'm out. You know what Square that is? knot. <laughs> Three more than I knew. <laughs> I think there's called a sheep something. Or you're not a know. boat nerd, are you? Look, oh, look, I know you're a Grateful Dead fan, but... Well, come on, you ain't got... Why, why you got to do that? You don't have to bring that in the podcast. <laughs> you don't have to bring jam bands into the podcast. <laughs> so... Moving right along. Moving right along. So we had a lot of good discussion over the last chapter about how we're not that into sailing. So we, we it was it was a tough read for us, parts of especially chapter six, I think. This section of chapters, we really got into some action. So how did you feel about that? So I, en- I definitely enjoyed this section better than, than the last section. It, it's interesting on a reread... You know, I found chapters eight and nine still to be pretty heavy with the, uh, you know, the starboard, larboard 
aft and port and all that jazz. Poop deck. Yeah, still, you know, man the mizzen mast. And it was still very heavy with all that stuff. But I enjoyed 10 and 11 quite a lot. And that's kind of where you actually got the action. You got some new and interesting characters. I liked the new characters that we, you know, that we had. So overall, I enjoyed this section. Still don't know why the hell they're out here in the ocean. Because, I mean, the bigger picture stuff is still just as baffling as it's always been. But I enjoyed the chapters overall. Well, let's jump into chapter eight. Chapter eight is called Summer's End. So we pick up in this chapter directly after the untimely death of Caldras, who was their sailing master, upon which basically the entire plan hinged. Oh, yeah. The entire plan hinged on Caldras being able to actually do the sailing part and pretend like he was taking orders from Locke, who was going to be pretend to be a sailing master, naval captain turned pirate. Yeah. So Caldras dies over being stressed about kittens. And... <laughs> Now Locke and Jean are at sea with absolutely no idea what they're doing. And the sea opens up. And it's a tremendous storm Let me trying to kill them. Still one of the most terrifying things in the world. That storm is a particular sea. fear of yours. Yes. Being in a storm at sea. Absolutely. When I was young, I was out on boats in rough waters, never anything you know, really huge. Um, but it made an impression on me as a young child. So they are out on this boat in basically in charge of a group of desperate sailor turned pirates. And Locke is an idiot. Locke is kind of an idiot. I think there's probably an apt nautical metaphor for how totally fucked they are at this point, but <laughs> I didn't pay enough attention to all the gibbets and gabbledy what's and poop decks to come up with one. I, I sat for a long time. Did you? They're as fucked as a mizzen mast. On up a, Shit's Creek without a paddle. Up. Damn it. <laughs> now it seems really obvious. Thanks. Well, it's not really a creek. That's more of a creek reference. So. Nice, Ron. Okay. <laughs> so, yeah. So Locke is a real dumbass. You know, Jabril comes to him. He's like, hey, you know, you think maybe you should do this? He's like, I thought about it and... uh I've decided I'm not gonna. <laughs> Locke yeah. is committed to his role as the captain, and he's he's trying to cling to that because he doesn't want these guys to know that he's doesn't know a poop deck from a hole in the ground. But yeah, at at this point, and I think at some point though, Locke even says, "I should have early in this process, I should have put." Jabril in charge of some stuff yeah, so yeah. he can just go do what needs to be done yeah yeah but it was too late for that so this group of oh, desperate definitely too late I agree. sailor turned yeah. pirates are steadily growing more and more suspicious of them and uh Jabril, idiots they do not know what they're talk they're doing they don't know what they're doing and exactly. this was like i cannot believe i just flat out don't believe that the Archon actually intended this to be successful. You know, my sense is that the Archon threw them out there probably as one of many schemes. Yeah, could be. Because they were completely expendable. True, that's true. And they were either going to succeed or they were going to die. And really, I don't think he cares either way. No, I absolutely agree with that. 
Yeah. So I, I, I don't think, I don't think we're meant to really think the Archon is a, is a mastermind just that he's willing to do anything and he really doesn't care about John and Locke at all. So he'll throw a few haymakers, just wild ass. Right. Basically all he's going to lose out of it is a ship. Exactly. So John and Locke are, are out there trying to sail for their lives. It's a terrible storm. And Jabril lets out a terrible secret. Locke doesn't have any pussy. <laughs> no. And, you know, no matter how you choose to look at that, the phrase is accurate. It's true. And as we've as we talked about in the last podcast, the two main what we'd call superstitions, but what the sailors see as mandates of their god, Iono, god of the sea, was that you have a woman officer on board and you have cats. They have neither. Neither. So it's it's an interesting thing to look at. You know, especially when you look at Caldrus's death as being seen as an omen, when part of what contributed to his death was that he was so stressed out that he didn't fulfill these mandates. And he ends up dying of a heart attack. So you wonder if it's an exploration on how much is superstition a self-fulfilling prophecy. Do, did he die of did he die from just stress and a heart attack, or did he die because they didn't give him the poison antidote? It's hard to say. I think you can. I think it's meant to be assumed that the stress contributed to it, because they all went out there at the same time, having just had the antidote. Yeah, you I know. T- I took it that he didn't get the antidote. I-, I took it that he just died of a heart attack. Yeah, because why would why would Stragos uh, send? Locke and John off with a fresh antidote and not him. Well, I don't think it was Stragos. I think it was um, that chick whose name I can't remember. Oh. To sabotage them. Well. Because he doesn't, she doesn't want them to come back and she doesn't want them to succeed. That would be interesting if that was true. I hadn't thought about that. I took it as, yeah, as she deliberately, because she was the one who gave it to him through Stragos. Now, if here's the other side of that is why go through all that? Why not why not just give all of them fake antidote? So I'm not sure how much sense that actually makes, but that's just sort of the way I've been processing it through my head. So um which is not to say it's right, but that's just the way I've sort of been thinking about it. So we'll, well it's see. An interesting possibility. Yeah. So what did you think of these new characters so far? We have Jabril and we have Bald Mazuka mentioned. Uh, Bald Mazuka is an awesome name. You know what I wrote in my notes? What? This name makes me want to have another kid. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we could name one of our current children Bald Mazuka if we wanted to. You're saying you're on board with this. I'm on board with the naming. I don't know that I'm on board with the extra child. I don't know if you've looked around recently, <laughs> but there are times of the day that I can't count them all because they're running around too quickly. So, yeah, that's an awesome name. Sounds like a uh, sounds like a good name for like a '90s, slightly pre-grunge era band. 
like Seattle West Coast, but not ninety three. I was gonna say like, extreme dirt bike rider. Bald Mazuka. Could be. Anyway. Anyway, uh, who? Okay, so what do you think of Jabril and Bald Mazuka? Uh, you know, not a ton. Not a ton. Not a ton one way or the other. So, you know, I think Jabril is kind of interesting because he could have so easily been written as just a straight up prick, but he's really yeah. not. No. He's kind of got the best interests of the boat at heart, though he certainly has no problem throwing Locke and John under the under the wheels, but he seems, and we'll talk about this a little more later in his actions towards them, but he could have so easily been written off as just like black hat, kind of heel bad guy. Mm-hmm foil and he wasn't i kind of liked that he he actually kind of likable he actually kind of reminds me of guys i used to know when i was in the military you know so these guys who were just really completely unfiltered but at the same point in time you know were smart guys who knew what they were talking about knew what they were doing and wanted you know wanted everybody to be successful but you know just didn't necessarily know how to uh be super tactful about it. So he kind of, I mean, he kind of reminds me of, of people I've actually known, but I, but I didn't think a whole lot of it one way or the other. Now, the next group of people, I was, I felt like there was some interesting cats that we ran into. Oh, sure. But before we meet them, mm-hmm. we have to save the ship. So the ship is going down. It's all going to hell in a handbasket. It gets so bad that Locke thinks if a bond's maid showed up at this point, I would kiss his feet if he could yeah. save if he could save my life. But they managed to save the ship, especially with Jabril and Mazuka and Locke and John basically all have to grab the wheel. But they're they managed to get out of the storm. The yeah, quote I wrote down from the, they break the mizzen mast, which is exactly what Jabril said. Hey, you should have put the sails down. We're gonna we're gonna either go over or we're gonna lose one of our one of our masts, and that's exactly what happens. Which I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't make them dead in the water, but it sure as shit makes the job harder. It does, and and lands right on a guy and smashes his head right in. Yeah, and now because of Locke's idiocy, you know, people have died. They're in a bad situation. But they, they the ship has made it through, and, and Locke says that feeling like you des- wanted desperately to die is fine evidence that you've yet to do so. Which I thought was clever. So this I thought was interesting. They get out of the storm. They're all alive. They've been awake for days, working in shifts, working furiously just to not sink. And the first thing they insist on doing is having a funeral. Mm. Before they've even eaten or slept, they're concerned about the dead haunting the ship. Yeah. So they're like, look, Ravel, who is Locke, the least you can do is is give put send these men to their rest because ship captains are by default ordained priests of Iono. Mm-hmm. So I thought this was really interesting because a that the crew found it that important. B in the past we've seen Locke and the gentleman bastards having no problem impersonating priests of other orders, and it's even though generally in the this universe that's seen as a completely unthinkable you're going to be cursed by the gods if you do something like that Mm -hmm. and but it's explained that for initiates of the 13th they sort of get a pass for doing stuff like that so we've seen them infiltrate other temples impersonate other priests no problem but it seems like there's a limit to what is acceptable or at least or to what they know 
Right. So when Locke is asked to bless these men and send them to Iono's rest, he says he he can't do it. He can't pretend to be a priest of Iono. Right. It's yeah. I wrote down the the quote. It says he was a priest of the Crooked Warden here at sea, one thousand miles out into Iono's domain aboard a ship that was already damned for spurning his mandates. There was no way in heaven or hell is that Locke would presume to give these men Iono's rest. So I just thought that was interesting. This is the first time we've seen him not willing to do that. Mm -hmm. And I don't know, do you think he was being stupid or superstitious? I sort of think of it in the way that Locke jumps out of a glass tower and there happens to be an elevator there. You know, sometimes he just kind of has to... step out in faith so to speak and do what he thinks is right and generally that works out well for him i think it was important to note that in front of jabril and several other people he pretty much added himself as a priest of the 13th i feel pretty confident that's going to come back around you know and at the end of this section it even sort of begins to come back around but I feel like that's going to come back and be some sort of benefit for them, uh, for him at a later date. So that's that's sort of what I thought about it. I think, and the the importance of the mandates of the thirteenth is brought up again and again and again. It becomes very important in this in section. this section, absolutely. So I thought it was a clever transition. Right after it, it one section ends with Locke blessing one of the fallen sailors in the name of the 13th. Yeah. And then the next line is the mutiny came the next morning. Yeah. (laughs) And I thought this was an interesting interaction. Locke says, so there's some of them that aren't happy with me. So this is chapter nine where chapter nine begins or is that not yet? No, we are still in chapter eight. Okay. All right. Hold on to your britches. I wasn't sure. Britches are going to stay here. They're going to stay on. Pants are on tonight, guys. Yes, it's a pants on podcast. <laughs> it's going to be the name of our new podcast network. Pants on podcast. It's the pants on podcast I don't think people network. are going to listen to that. I think if we call it the pants off podcast. That's for the other. Then we're, that's the other one, right? That's right. Yeah, that's right. So anyway, this is interesting because Locke says, there's some of them that aren't happy with me. And Jean says, none of them are happy with us. So again, it's this dynamic of Locke wanting Jean to save himself, Jean insisting on staying. Mm-hmm. And uh, finally, Locke out, you know, completely just says, you can, they'll let you stay. Yeah. Just sacrifice me. And Jean says, fuck you. You are 10 pints of crazy in a one pint glass. And I just, I liked this interaction there. You know, we've seen these friends go through a lot for each other Mm -hmm. and they still keep showing up for each other. And I like that their, their friendship isn't effortless, you know, and that they, they're working through these ups and downs because they've been through some really intense situations. Absolutely. Yeah. And I I liked when Locke said, I would have liked to have seen Stragos's face when we did whatever we were going to do to him. (laughs) Yeah. So... The mutineers are pounding down the door. Jean still has faith in Locke. He says, if they if they want to talk to you with your wits about you, we might still have a chance. And Locke is able to talk his way from being stabbed and shot with full of arrows to being put overboard in a boat with no oars. That's admittedly better. A lot better. 
And he comes up with a beautiful lie because he gets called out as not being a naval officer. And, and who are you then? Mm-hmm. And he tells them that he's an intelligence officer who stole a boat and basically can keep the rest of his story the same. Yeah. And they, this is something that these sailors know nothing about. They're like, oh, what do you mean? Like spies and things? He's like, yeah, spies. And things. And things. <laughs> <laughs> So it's interesting as they're put in the boat and they're floating away and Locke goes, well, I wonder who's going to get all my stuff. And then he just thinks, well, thieves prosper. Yeah. You, know, uh, you win some, you lose some like easy come, easy go. So that's interesting. And as they're floating away, they see another boat approach and it's a pirate ship mm-hmm. and it takes the red messenger captive and comes back for them. And once again, Locke thinks, well, thieves prosper. Yeah. <laughs> so what did you think of that turn of events? You don't have to think anything. I'm just trying to give you room to talk. No. <laughs> no, I um I mean it, it makes sense. I, I mean perhaps a little coincidental, you know, uh, a little convenient, but eh, I mean it's a book, you know, plot's got to roll forward. It, it didn't really bother me that much. What I did like was when the you know this large well decked out well maintained well staffed ship that's you know almost twice the size of the red messenger rolls up you know and Locke is like avast you know like <laughs> come down says, here we won't board you you know we're going to have to repel borders <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know and he's and he you know he plays the cocky card you know Right, so the first interaction with the pirates that mm-hmm. we meet is very charming. There's a, a woman leans over and says, "Would you like to be rescued?" Yeah, you know. And then she makes them strip to their strip down to yeah. their bare nothings and stand on one leg. And they, you know, you've got to entertain us first, and and they they go back and forth a little. So they are rescued by, by pirates. And I, I wonder if it's more evidence that that there is a there are higher powers working. In these events. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of, you know, particularly at the end of the last book, it's one of the things that we discussed multiple times that I do think in this world that the 13 gods are legit and real and actively involved. I think that's kind of the world that Scott Lynch has created. And you just sort of see it through Locke time and time again when he follows the tenets of the 13th god, shit just kind of lines up. So it it's I could see how some people would would look at that event and say, oh, how convenient, you know, in a sarcastic sort of way. But it just seems sort of in keeping with everything else to me. It doesn't really strike me as being that unusual uh, that they got rescued, you know, this tiny, you know, needle in a haystack quite, you know, almost in a literal sense, except this tiny, tiny little, tiny little boat in this massive ocean. And, you know, that the pirates just happened to run across them at that time. It doesn't really strike me as being that odd or unusual for, for this world. What I think is even more sort of interesting, if you believe sort of that the gods are active in this world, is sort of who it was that ran across them, you know, and that it happens to be somebody who I think is going to change sort of their outlook on things. And I think this encounter with these particular people is going to be one of the turning points in the book. I agree. And I I do also see the connection between Locke making the choice, even though it didn't turn out well for him and he had to know that, 
not to presume to give the sailors Iono's rest and instead did what he felt was right and followed yeah. his moral compass and then having this almost seemingly miraculous rescue happen. Yeah, yeah. Out, you know, hours later. So I definitely saw that as well. So we meet very briefly at the end of this chapter. Mm-hmm. Lieutenant Ezri and Captain Zamira Drakasha of the Poison Orchid, which is an awesome name for a boat. It's pretty groovy. Right? So chapter nine is called The Poison Orchid. And in this chapter, Jean and Locke and the crew of the Red Messenger are basically locked up and we we get to know the new crew. Yeah. You know, we're sort of meeting the uh, meeting the new neighbors. Correct. So right off the bat, Jean and Esri, who is the first mate basically on the ship, hit it off. And they flirt and it's cute and they're using poetry. And she says, don't you better not lift a finger, big boy. And he says, my fingers will be on their best behavior. (laughs) And you're like, stop it. Guys are too cute. Get a room. Right? (laughs) So right away, we, we know that we get a sense that these are good people, that these are Locke's kind of people, and that they're very smart people as well. Yeah. So Locke right away is, he's taken aside by the captain, Captain Drakasha, and interrogated, and he has a really hard time dodging around her questions in a satisfactory way because she's very smart, and she can definitely tell that there is something not right with what he's telling her. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So what was your, what were your impressions at this point of the new characters and throughout the rest of this chapter? I, I don't know if it was really at this point, but I kind of, I just kind of like the crew of the Poison Orchid. I like the boat. I like the, you know, I like that sort of team overall. So, so I, I dug it. The other thing I thought was interesting is you get to see right away the degree to which they treat this boat as home and they take it, you know, and they take the upkeep of it and they take the condition of it very, very seriously. You know, and they want it to be a nice place for them, a nice place to live, you know, and they really put a lot of effort into it. And it kind of reminds me of the church inside of a church, you know, underneath yeah. of the Temple of Paralandro, yeah. where, you know, they really took care to make sure that, you know, where they lived was a nice place. It was sort of their respite, you know, and their church. And, you know, they put a lot of, um, they put a lot of effort into making that a place that they were happy to be and a place to live. And so I just sort of saw that parallel, you know, um, is just another piece of evidence of like you said, these really are, these really are sort of locks people. It's the same, they're the same people in really just kind of a different setting, you know, but it takes, you know, Jean picks up on that pretty quickly. Locke in his sort of singular focus doesn't always pick up on it quickly. Right. And Locke has a very hard time switching gears. Yes. You know, even towards the end of this or, or even a, a chapter ahead, he's still kind of thinking of Drakasha as a mark, even though she has kind of proven her herself willing to take him in. So at this point she can tell she's talked to his other crew She's seen the inside of his chest, so she's got some questions. And again, she can tell that things aren't lining up. Yeah. What struck me at this point was, again, like you said, the homey nature of the ship. Drakasha has 
two children mm-hmm. running around and there's some very adorable banter mm-hmm. going back and forth and around about the children. My favorite was when she asks one of her her quartermaster, I think, to keep an eye on them. And yeah, yeah. He leaves them with someone else and then they're running amok and, and he gets called up on it and he's like, hey, you know, I had to go go to the bathroom and he goes man's got a piss yeah and the three-year-old goes man's got a piss and i was like <laughs> that's kids <laughs> yeah. but it is a very homey atmosphere and you do kind of get an immediate liking for these characters right away well and compare that i mean so compare this you know what happens you know Drakasha says or i think it was actually Ezra uh, initially but says okay listen here's the deal you guys have drawn the short straw. You're on the shit detail. Here's what's going to happen. The scrub watch. The scrub watch, yeah. You're going to do all the hard work. You're going to get, you know, you're going to be the first ones over the wall, so to speak, when things get dangerous. We get to poor prodigal and you want to leave? Fine. Get the hell out of here. But if you prove yourself worthy, do what we ask you to do, you become an equal partner. You know, and you can see that the people who are equal partners, I mean, there's definitely a hierarchy, but they're treated well. They're treated sort of like family. Compare this to like the first introduction in this series that we get of the thief maker and how crooked and perverted that little gang was. Right. The crew of the Poison Orchid definitely reminds me of the Gentleman Bastards and how how Chains was with those kids when he took them in Mm -hmm. and how he was a father figure and a family at the same time would threaten to kill them. So Drakasha, you know, tells them straight up, if you cross these lines, X, Y, Z, I'm going to kill you. She tells Locke. I have no problem executing a smart ass, you know, but she's going to use them if she can. Mm. Um, I like the part where still back in, in this scene where she's interrogating him and they bring Jean in because he's told them that, oh, Jean is, he's just a coworker. He's, you know, he's not, I trust him and everything, but he's not a friend. So they bring him in. Mm-hmm. She tells Esri to kill him just to see his reaction. Yeah. So she can tell that he's lied. But then Jean and Esri are bonding over kidney punches. Yeah. And it's really cute. Yeah, it does sort of remind me of of Chains because if you if you think about it, although Chains treated and wanted everybody in the Gentleman Bastards to be equals and to kind of be brothers, but it was still a kind of a, a scenario where you had to work if you wanted to eat. You know, like you had to pull your weight, and it very much reminds reminds me of that on a much larger scale. It's very much like the Gentleman Bastards. Right, and we get to see at the in the next chapter, and we I think we've kind of come to the end of chapter nine, mm-hmm. as the, the crew of the Red Messenger, Jean and Locke, are settling into what's called the Scrub Watch. Mm-hmm. And I think one other important thing is that the captain tells the crew of the Red Messenger that they're not to kill or harm Locke and Jean. Yeah. She says... You put them over the side and let Iono be their judge. I showed up an hour later. That settles that. Anyone who thinks they know better than the Lord of the Grasping Waters can jump over the rail and take it up with them in person. <laughs> so he, she has put that out there. And the crew takes that seriously. So, in fact, one of the crew, Bald Mazooka, mm. kind of once they're all settled and and they get through all of this and they're all locked up together again in their quarters, he's going to... 
he's going to threaten them. Mm-hmm. Well, the entire rest of the crew threatens him. Yeah. And says, don't you mess this up for us. If you've heard of this captain, you know, if you cross that line, mm-hmm. she will kill you. She will kill all of us. But it's also a good opportunity for them, for, them, for, for people who you know, or put in a really shitty situation, but they also recognize that this is a, an opportunity for them to make money and, uh, and to turn a bad situation into a pretty comfortable situation. Right. And we get to find out later, you know, at this point, I think the first time I read it, I was starting to think like, these are the least murdery pirates like ever. They're kind of almost too not murdery. Like they're almost too nicey nice, Mm -hmm. but we get to see what happens when one of the crew of the red messenger, breaks one of the rules, which is you don't touch a weapon. Yeah. So a- after a few days on the scrub watch, Bald Mazooka snaps. Yep. And there's a guy of the crew of the Poison Orchid who's been messing with him. And he just snaps and grabs a club, goes to hit him. Mm-hmm. And Drakasha has no problem dragging him and throwing him over the side. Yep. So we get to see that she puts her money where her mouth is. And I thought this was interesting. She says, out here... You lose your head, you make one goddamn mistake, and you can take the whole ship down. So she doesn't play when it comes to her home. Yeah. Um, as we go on through the rest of chapter 10, Locke and John finally get a chance to get off the scrub watch. But before that happens, there's a little interlude that we don't see. Um, not an interlude, but a little scene where we don't really see where it's going, but you kind of assume that it's not there for nothing Mm -hmm. where Zamira and her kids are in their cabin and they find a deck of playing cards that Locke had in his chest Mm -hmm. and they find out spill alcohol on it and it turns into alchemical cement. Yeah. yeah. And she's like, what the hell? And Locke's just like, Oh, I'm sorry. Don't throw them away. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just worth mentioning, but it's just a very short couple of paragraphs. But then finally, so the, the the rules of the scrub watch, which I don't know if we, we really kind of went into that before, were basically, um, like you said, you get the worst duty. You don't get fed till anyone else gets fed. You get to do all the crap jobs we don't want to do. But if on our way to Port Prodigal, which is where they're going, it's the kind of the, the pirates. What is that in the Pirates of the Caribbean? The pirates. I don't know. I, Those movies suck. Okay, whatever. <laughs> it's like a. It's a pirate city. Pirate city. The lawless city. Barbosa. That's going to drive me crazy. Anywho, they're going there, okay? I mean, lots of yo-ho-ho-ing and <laughs> bottles of rum. But if on the way there, they come across a ship and they decide to take her, if the scrub watch is going to be the first to board and face the danger, if they live through that, then they get to be on the crew. Yep. So that's a pretty awesome thing. They're and all excited. Of course, that's what happens. Um, so of course that is what happens and they spot a ship and Locke asks if he can be the first one over the side (laughs) in a moment of gallant stupidity. (laughs) So of course, John is going to follow him. And interestingly, Lieutenant Esri says, Hey, I'll go too. And, Mm -hmm. and the captain is kind of like, what? So that's an that's an interesting little thing. And the way that they lure the ship in is a little interesting as well because they fly a distress signal. The other ship doesn't approach. They fly another distress signal that is commonly understood to mean if you save us, you can have everything we're carrying. Yeah. And at that point, now the ship then the comes ship over. the ship decides, yeah. 
So you don't have to feel bad for the people on the ship because they're <laughs> schmucks, obviously. It's the schmuck ship. That was the schmuck signal. It was the schmuck signal. So they get to the ship. They go to attack it. And they find that the ship is actually already under attack by some Jeremite raiders. So the so from what I understood, the family or whoever it was who decided to put this charter out for this boat decided that they could find cheap labor and protection by hiring these Jeremite, um, I guess they're sort of like priests, mm -hmm. like cult members almost. Of cult a sort. members, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, you know, these people would would essentially work for, for peanuts, you know, and so they decided to do that. However, being, you know, cult members... They're insane. So, <laughs> so as soon as the shit goes down, now you've got like 20 or 30 of these just absolute, you know, psychotic. They're like, um, they're like reavers from, uh, from That's exactly from what they reminded me of, yeah. which is funny because I so see, um, Zamira Drakasha as Gina Torres. That's the only mm. person I could ever picture playing that. I hadn't really thought about that, so but that's a good one. That's right? a good it's a good match, yeah. So yeah, so these guys are psychotic. So like they're they're not going to submit. They're not going to give up, you know. Typically in these scenarios, once one of these smaller ships who's in distress or whatever, once they've been boarded and they realize what the hell's going on, eighty percent of the time there's not going to be a lot of resistance. And in the remaining 20% of the time when there is resistance, as soon as the pirates get the upper hand, they're going to surrender. N not in this case. In this case... What did you find on the web? Siri is interrupting our goddamn podcast. She says, here's what I found on the web for is pirates get the upper hand. They're going to surrender. <laughs> what did she find? Uh, she found Black Sails Series 4, Episode 3, Discussion Thread, Pirate Glossary, Talk Like a pet Pirate, and Blackbeard's Crew and the Williamsburg, Virginia Colonial Ghosts. Well, that's lame, Siri. <laughs> we have to turn Siri down. <laughs> So yeah, I thought it was interesting that, and I'm not sure if it's a chapter, this chapter or the next, where it's kind of explained that ships are so heavily insured, and the the families, the businesses that own them, basically expect to take a certain amount of losses. Yeah. So as long as the pirates don't kind of go above and beyond, it's kind of like, I mean, you it's know, an acceptable risk. It's kind of an acceptable risk. They don't make that big a deal of it. Yeah. The pirates do their thing. You know, the people on the boats is kind of a bummer, yeah. but... Well, and, as, and again, and this is sort of why it makes sense for these pirates not to be super bloodthirsty. Because, again, you take a boat, you put the uh, the family off at a port, and they find a way to get home, and nobody, you know, gets injured, at least no more than anybody has to, everyone's okay. It's completely different than if you take the boat and, you know 
start wearing people's skin, you know, on your face, right? <laughs> a completely different Don't scenario. Don't do that. Now you're going to have people coming after you, you know? As long as you're civil about things, you're not going to get a huge backlash. But they board this boat, and this is not a normal scenario. These psycho Jeremiah cultists are going to fight to the man to the death. Right, so they get on, they they row up to the ship. I think it's funny, they're all dressed in ladies' clothes with parasols <laughs> and such. And they they get up to the ship and they they throw up the wire and they're about to like be like, Arr! and mm-hmm. they hear, save us. So these Jeremite Raiders have turned on their masters mm-hmm. and they're all of a sudden stepping into a, a real fight. Yeah. And Locke kind of is overcome with his bravado slash insanity. And he just is like, Rah! you know, and totally would have been killed if Jean wasn't right behind him. Mm -hmm. But he manages to, to comically bluff his way through this fight through sheer luck, drop a barrel on one. And then while the other two were knocked out, he cuts their throats, but he, he impresses the other crew members. Yeah. And when he comes out, there's an interesting moment where he looks around for Jean, because usually at this point, Jean has scraped him up and is tending to his wounds and he sees him standing over Esri. Yeah. Tending her injured. wounds. Yep. So slightly different. Blah, Yeah. And that becomes sort of the, you know, emo, uh, the emo thread of the, uh, of the next several pages or next chapter is. But it's not overdone. No, it's like, not. Like, you know. No, it's not. But Locke is just like, oh, well, you know, good for him. Fucker. Right. <laughs> like, I'll just be over here sleeping in a goddamn rat hole. Don't mind me. <laughs> but yeah. again, I like how the tension of the the fight that we saw in the interludes in the beginning of the book, it's not completely gone. It's carries little hints of it that have carried through as this relationship grows. And it, for me, it makes the relationship seem very real. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, I think it's, it would, this would be, a much worse book in my opinion if we didn't have that it's kind of set up in the beginning of the book as though that's going to be a central part of what's going on right so and we obviously know there's still more to come right but they eventually manage to take the boat lock you know impresses everybody and now all of a sudden the scrub watch becomes full sort of vested you know fully vested pirates you know they got their 401k um, you know, they got their gold watch, <laughs> they get to come in and have donuts, you know, at 1030 and, uh, you know, they're going to be living that pirate life, yo. They have an adorable sort of hazing initiation ceremony. Yeah, that was hilarious. Right. I thought, I thought that was quite enjoyable. That was definitely my favorite part of the, of the chapters. Yeah, I like that a lot, too. And it really kind of endears you to these characters pretty quickly. Yeah. Um, at some point in there, after they, they're hazed and everything, Locke is able to solve a problem for Zamira and that he is able to talk the ship's master into giving up the ship's purse. Yeah. So basically, there's always a, a big stockpile of money on a ship that only the ship's master knows where it is. And it's, you know, he's been captured, but they're going to have to pull the ship apart to kind of figure out where it is. Yeah. Locke says... Hey, do you have a dead guy? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I kind of got like both flashbacks there because mm-hmm. he he pretends to like kill this already dead guy mm-hmm. in order to convince the the ship's master to give up the ship's purse. 
So a couple interesting conversations happen then between him and Zamira, but what it's all leading up to is the decision that Locke has to make. And the conflict that's been building with Jean up until this point is that Jean, and I think it's interesting to see this thread that's been brought through the whole book back to the scene that we kind of weren't sure why it was there, where they're practicing repelling and the Mm -hmm. bumbling highwayman. Yeah. You know, where where they end up choosing to save his life because Thieves Prosper. Yep. Because he's one of them. And that theme has been carried through the importance of that mandate. So Jean pulls Locke up and says, these are our people. We can't throw them under the bus for the Archon. He's not our people. And if you really take the mandates of our God seriously, you're a priest. We can't do this. And Locke's like, well, we're going to die if we don't. So... Yeah, I mean, and he's in a tough situation. It's interesting to me that, again, one of the sort of central conflicts of this whole book so far has been that Locke wants to have a job. Right. Like, he wants to have a con job, you know, and he's particularly focused less on the Thieves Prosper and more on the Rich Remember thing, where he just really wants to stick it to as many people as possible. He's so heavily focused on that. And Jean is sort of looking around and say, you know, and saying, we lost our brothers. We lost our family. We lost our home. But we can find another one. You know, and you could see a little bit of that in, I forget the name of the town, but the first town that they they land in where Jean just kind of takes this gang over and starts trying to... Verrazzo, sorry. Yeah, starts to try to kind of build this life for himself, you know, and he's looking for something different. You know, they're looking for different things. And here in, you know, it really starts to kind of become much more obvious and much more apparent here in this scenario. Well, as you said, Jean is saying, look, these are our people. I mean, they had this theatrical hazing thing. They, you know, they share equal partners. Look at, you know, this, this ship is not all that different from the church of the 13th underneath the temple of Paralandro. You know, this is the sort of life that we could live and enjoy and be happy. And Locke, who is still focused on sticking it to the Archon, but he does have the very real reality of the fact that, as far as everybody knows, they've got about 45 days until they die. Clock is ticking. You know, and Locke also has this other sort of central conflict that he has to figure out, this other question that he has to figure out of, do I tell these people the truth or not? And that is what Jean has been encouraging him to do. We need to put it out there to them. We need to trust them. And it's interesting to compare these two characters. Jean's got this emotional resilience that I wonder if it comes from having had the experience of growing up in a stable home with a family, losing that and having to rebuild it again with chains and the gang. Locke has only ever had one. Yep. I mean, obviously he had went through whatever he went through as a child, but but it was sort of before he was even really able. I mean, he could barely remember his mother. 
Right, but it's John's already yeah. been through the experience of losing a home and family yeah. and rebuilding it again. Yeah. So he's got this emotional resilience that Locke just doesn't have. Mm-mm. And Locke is coping by focusing on this job. So it's very difficult for him to stop seeing Zamira and the crew as just another part of his scheme, as yeah. another mark. Mm-hmm. So it kind of leads up to this final conversation where... Um, Zamira pulls him up and says, I think I've figured out what your deal is. And she basically hands him the perfect misconception. She's like, you guys are double agents, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, oh, and he, and he says, how often does a mark hand just me? Just give it to just you. Just give it to me. And he's got to decide, is she going to be a mark or isn't she? Yeah. And he's really tempted, despite Jean having insinuated that if he continues to lie he might lose jean's friendship yeah so he does decide to go ahead and trust her and that's where the name of this chapter comes from all else truth so at the end of the chapter jean and Locke meet up and he says i told her everything and then through hand signals he says i didn't tell her about a couple things the bonds magi kamor are real names but all else truth Mm-hmm. So we see that a little bit of a mending in that relationship. Yeah. And then Jean and Esri do it. Oh, yeah. They, they go spend some time it. on the other podcast. They. <laughs> oh, yeah. Loudly. <laughs> Loudly enough Loudly. to piss off their, their elderly uh, neighbor. That, that was pretty funny. That, I enjoyed that part, yeah. Yes, yeah, so the ship's doctor, Tregane. Sounds right. Sounds right, right. Comes out and she's got this hideous spider thing in her arms and and Locke's like, Bleh! Yeah. The fuck is that? Like So apparently Ezri and Jean broke the spider's cage with all of their hullabaloo. Flailing. <laughs> they are both quite heavily muscled, as it's yes, been detailed. Yes, yes, yes. All curves. You would think you would think Jean would be fairly lean at this point. Some people just aren't built that way. Some people aren't built that way. Yeah. He's like a tank. Yeah. So yeah, so that was the end of chapter eleven. So I mean, it felt good to me. For it just sort of felt satisfying for me for Locke to be like, okay, fine, like I'm going to choose to trust somebody else, and. It also kind of gives to me sort of a, a certain sense of purpose to this whole thing. Yeah. Um, it was, I still feel like the last several chapters have been such a long way to go. And for what? This book is sort of strange in the way that it's organized that you're deeply into this book before it throws you this big ass left hook of sending you out to sea like well it's a lot less cohesive than the first book i mean the last book there were definitely different things going on you had this sort of don salvaro scheme and Mm -hmm. then you had this thing arise with the gray king but it was like those things were happening concurrently not in completely different realms And and this does feel a lot more scattered yeah which and you know they're going to bring it back together. Oh, like, yeah, all that course, wasn't for yeah. nothing. But it it's like a complete separation. It really is. You know, and it, I mean, I guess it makes sense in its own sort of context. 
because the first book, everything was sort of happening in one location. There were all these different things going on, but you were in one location. Because of how he's chosen to tell this story, you know, you can't really be on the boat and dealing with the people on the boat, but also dealing with the Archon while on the boat. Like, so... While dealing with Requin. On the boat, right? You know, right. so you kind of have to to be physically moved around and, and, you know, and so it makes sense in its own sort of context, but it's weird from a reader's point of view. I, you know, and I think, again, we've, we've said this in other books and other things. I think because we're reading it at a relatively slow pace, I think that sort of exacerbates it as well. So I felt like it was this whole section of the last seven or eight chapters has been like, where the hell is this going? Especially the the whole first part of making them pretend to be ship captains and all that. I'm like, Jesus Christ, Is I hope that comes back around in some way, because otherwise it was really sort of a thrown away thing just to ultimately land them on this pirate ship, you know. Um, but it also seems to me, and one of the things, you know, I'm thinking at the end of chapter 11 is, here's an opportunity for you to take a really shitty situation and try to turn it into something positive. The poison thing still to me is a complication which is going to be a major pain in the ass, and it just doesn't even sort of make sense to me. Particularly, it's almost so outlandish that I almost don't even believe it's real, that they that that they're actually were or were not poisoned, except that there's no reason for the Archon not to have. Right. Otherwise, I would be like, this is so outlandish, and you, your scheme was to give these people 60 days, but they had to spend 30 of them in transit, assuming that they have decent wind. Like, it's just, that makes zero sense to me. But I'll roll with it. We're rolling with it. We're rolling with it. So predictions? Yes. I really only have one prediction. And it's essentially that what I think that scene between Jean and Locke in the beginning when they're standing crossbow to crossbow with these people and Jean turns on Locke is going to tie back to the this poison orchid. And it's going to tie back to, you know, that Locke is going to become hyper-obsessed again with accomplishing his mission and sticking it to the Archon and sticking it to Requin. And Jean is going to focus on wanting to do the right thing by those people. And that's why he's going to turn on. That the people that they're standing across from are going to be somehow related to the poison orchid. That's my prediction. It's a good prediction. Yeah, we'll see. So you want to get into some listener interactions? Yes. So we've been gone for a little while. So this has been this is going to be a little bit weird because we've not only have we been gone for a little while, but the last two podcasts have been about paper girls. Correct. So and I don't want you know, I don't want to get too deep down into that. So not going to be able to get into every interaction, but I do want to go through a few. All right. So Ashley Marie at Ashkitty93 says, feel better sending good thoughts. 
Pat Sponigle says, holy butts. I hope whoever has a fever gets better soon. So we want to thank everybody who reached out to us uh, with well wishes. Uh, Lucas Rosen at Luke and Lucas, excuse me, Luke Rosen writer said feel better. So we really appreciate all of that. Adam at LFC Adam 88 185 says, I am struggling on this second read through of Red Seas Under Red Skies. It's like I forgot all about the ship talk. Although this could be an audiobook problem, I have to listen to every word, so no skim reading. I think mm. I only persevered first read because it was part of a series. I would agree that the skim reading, I did a lot of that in those ship talky parts. And, you know, for me, I read this book very quickly, pretty much directly after reading the first book as well. Yeah. So some of that, I, it really just changes how you experience the book when you can tear through it. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely think that it does. So uh, Laura on Facebook, on our Facebook group page, Laurel Armister says, feel better soon. And I want to also give a thanks to Theo, who when we when I posted episode 47, I was still pretty sick. So my social media game was not up to speed. I was just sort of like, here's the podcast. And I just like, I got it up there. I didn't make an announcement or anything. Mm -hmm. So Theo went in for us and grabbed the link and posted it up on the group page. Thanks, and Theo. Here's episode 47, guys. Like, <laughs> And he had a lot to say about uh, Paper Girls, but we'll read that when we actually are on a Paper Girls episode. So, um, And if you guys haven't checked that out yet, go for it. Yeah, it's been awesome. good. We Yeah, we've enjoyed it quite a lot. I'm looking forward to reading four. And uh, see, Catherine Stewart says, I'm totally behind on reading uh, Lies of Locke Lamora, so I can't quite catch up to you guys. But I just finished reading Ready Player, uh, finished the Ready Player One podcast, and I just saw the movie today. I'd love to hear your thoughts and compare and contrast the books and the movie. And when the hell are we going to do that? We got to do that. I'm so excited to see it. I am too. I really want, I really want to see the movie. I have been super avoiding anything like I've been avoiding reviews. I've been, like as soon as I see it come up, I skip whatever I'm looking at. Me too. So I'm really excited to get out there. We got to figure out how we're going to make that happen. We have a couple of new reviews on iTunes. Oh, nice. Yes. So Smokey597 says, cute couple talking about some pretty cool books. It's fun listening to their opinions. So thank you, Smokey. And Crimson Viking says, I like to listen to reviews and analysis of books I finished reading. I listened to these guys review A Name of the Wind, Charming and Endearing, and A Very Safe Place to Nerd Out. Yes, that's what we're looking that's for. That's what we want. We want you guys to have a safe place to nerd out. <laughs> I hope they get some sleep in sometime soon. Uh, P.S. I totally got the strawberry wine song reference. First taste of love indeed. <laughs> so that's a callback. That's a callback. That's a good one. And <laughs> a couple of other uh, folks who have come in and given us some star reviews. I, it looks like uh, one or two five-star reviews and one four-star review. We love all of those as well. Uh, so anything that we can get where we get um, some interaction there on iTunes always helps us to get up in the rankings. So that's something that we love. What we really love more than anything, though, is word of mouth. So if you like what you hear, tell a friend, uh, tell a coworker, uh, tell your mom, tell your CPA, 
tell the, you know, the guy on the corner who says, Hey man, you got any spare change? Be, yeah, man, I got you. I got some spare change. You got, you got a podcast, uh, app. You got a podcast catcher. Cause I got something I want you to listen to, man. So just don't tell Ron that guy's an asshole. Nice Ron. <laughs> If you want to find us on the interwebs, you can look for us on Twitter at the D&D Podcast. That's D as in David, N as in Nancy, D as in David Podcast. We Now that I'm coming back to the land of the living, I'll actually start interacting on there again. You can find us on Facebook at The Duke and Duchess. Also, on look for us on our Facebook group page, a good place to chat with us where you don't have to wait for us to post content. You can be part of the community. If you're looking for advice, if you need somebody to set you straight, if you need somebody to straighten out your love life, <laughs> you can email us at advice at the Duke and Duchess podcast.com and the Duchess will give you some advice. So that is everything. Do you have anything else? Nope. Well, thanks, everybody. It's good to get back in the saddle again and get back to podcasting and recording. Next week, Red Seas Under Red Skies, chapters 12 and chapter 13. Correct. Outstanding. Good night, See you everybody. All then. Hello, Questers. This is Mandy, the host of Caster Quest, inviting you to enjoy our podcast where we explore the rich and vibrant world of Patrick Rothfuss's best-selling fantasy series, The Kingkiller Chronicle, soon to be adapted as a major motion picture and television show produced by the award-winning creator of Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Hungry for more content? Perhaps you will enjoy our recaps of HBO's Game of Thrones, Over the Garden Wall, animated Batman films, or our world-famous erotic fanfiction reads. Whatever you're in the mood for, if you love a good story, humor, impromptu parody songs, and thousands of pop culture references, you'll enjoy our show. You can find Cast Request on SoundCloud, iTunes, and of course, our amazing network, the Earth Station One Network, at esopodcast.com. <laughs>